Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. My name is John Sherburn, the producer for the show, and our host, as always, is Dr. Colleen Bielitz. Today's guest is Dr. Sima Alexi Eben, who serves as both the research coordinator for Connecticut Sea Grant and as a professor in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics and Maritime Studies at the University of Connecticut. She teaches courses in environmental and marine science and policy and engages in social science research focused on institutional and human dimensions of marine and coastal environments. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is a part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect our oceans. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. And today we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Sima Eben, who administers Connecticut Sea Grant's research funding efforts. Hello, Sima, and welcome to the show. Hi, Colleen. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, yeah, it's great to have you here. And one of the first things I usually like to do is to find out a little bit more about our guests that we have on the show. So if you would, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did your passion for the ocean begin? Well, I uh, grew up in New York City and we lived in an apartment on Staten Island with this spectacular view of New York Harbor. Um, My mom had always said she couldn't live anywhere without a view of the water. So you know, maybe it's partly genetic, but um, we, she was actually from Connecticut, from Groton, where I live. I live, you know, a hundred feet from where she lives now. Uh, And uh, so every summer we'd come up here to visit my grandfather and, uh, you know, he lived just on this, you know, beautiful promontory that stuck out between Baker Cove and Pine Island Bay and kind of looking at Fisher's Island Sound and Long Island Sound. So I, you know, spent my summers just in the water, you know, either sailing or canoeing or swimming, you know, running around on the islands and marshes. So uh, it, it's been something I've done since I was really little. And I, I imagine that's where my passion came from. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. And I can imagine when you have a view like that of the ocean, how it kind of sits in your heart the rest of your life. Um, I know that you started as a fishery social scientist in Alaska, which I thought was very interesting. So maybe you could tell our listeners what that is and what did you learn from your research? So actually in Alaska, I was doing more just fishery science. So I uh, went up there to get my master's working with um, Oli Matisson, who was uh, the dean of the fishery school there at the University of Alaska at Juneau, which is now College of Southeast. Uh, but I, at that point, the first time I went up there, I was really uh, looking at um, developing ways of better managing pink salmon by uh, interviewing fishermen. And also um, I had a test fishery uh, and this was all for pink salmon, which were caught mostly in inside uh, gillnet and pursing fisheries in uh, Southeast Alaska. And I was stationed in a little teeny port called Elfin Cove on Chichikoff Island, kind of more to the west of these areas. So uh, there was a small group of trollers who, who um, you know, hand trollers in fact, who had found that they could develop a market for these pink salmon, which are kind of the lowest value of the salmon. And so they were trolling for them uh, using hook and line uh, so my my work was seeing if uh, this could be um, an innate kind of test fishery for the abundance, if we could kind of predict the abundance in the coming days in these inside fisheries. So uh, that was, you know, one thing I did. And in my off time, I commercially fished for, for salmon and then halibut. And I just, I loved commercial fishing. I did go back to Alaska, but more in the interior for my doctoral work. 
but at this time I was in Southeast and it was, it was just gorgeous. Yeah. I, I have never been to Alaska, but it looks absolutely beautiful. So if you could paint a picture with words of what life on the water is like in Alaska, uh, maybe you could describe it. And can you tell us how it's different than the waters of New England and how it's <laughs> the same? <laughs> well, I got to say, um, you know, Alaska is a huge state, so I can't like speak for all of Alaska. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> all, all I can speak for, you know, Southeast Alaska is just as, you know, really, and I think I imprinted on it because that was where I first went, kind of like a salmon. So that was, you know, kind of my uh, natal Alaskan experience. And, um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of conifers that come down. It's, you know, large mountains. Some have uh, glaciers uh, coming down to these beautiful inside waters of inlets. And, you know, I remember one time when I was fishing commercially uh, on another boat, actually not doing my research, but uh, we were at a place called Point Adolphus and we were uh, trolling, this was power trolling, so we had power winches, but we were power trolling for salmon. And it was just, Southeast Alaska is a place that rains, you know, basically nine days out of 10. So it's known (laughs) for its high precipitation. And this was just a gloriously sunny day. And I remember being at Point Adolphus and there was like a pod of killer whales and they were like, you know, just cruising around the boat. And in the distance, there were like, you know, bowhead whales that were breaching and there was eagles circling and there were, you know, salmon on the line and we were reeling in these just large king salmon. And it was, you know, it was just spectacular. So, you know, that kind of, I think, you know, I hate to use that word pristine, but you know this this kind of wilderness uh, that surrounds the the um, the waters in Alaska is very different than New England. I mean, the other thing is I swim all the time. I even swim in Cape Cod, but Alaskan waters are really of a different nature. They're you know seriously cold. So uh, the only time I really ever swam in Alaska, I think I was wearing a friend's uh, survival suit. Um, so, so, you know, swimming and kind of the beach activities we're so used to here in New England just are really not an option there. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. But it sounds beautiful. I mean, like breathtakingly beautiful. Yeah. It, another time, I'll just say I was in this little inlet called Latuya Bay, which is out on the coast of, of uh, southeast, kind of, uh, you know, north of most of southeast. So it's facing the ocean and it's this little pocket and actually had been the place of a great tragedy when a glacier had um, calved into that bay and it had you know, killed uh, the fishermen who were kind of haul, uh, in there for the night because it was a great uh, harbor you know, for you know, anchoring up in the evening after a day of trolling. But we, we went in and um, I'm from New York. So <laughs> I remember <laughs> looking at, at the coast of you know, the, the land surrounding us in the bay and there were these big black dogs and I was like, what? And it turned out they were just, you know, it was a pack of, you know, wolves, oh. which would just come down to the beach. Uh, and so I remember just, you know, there's so much wildlife there, and, um, you know, really spectacular. Yeah, well, for sure. And then you came back to the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about your maritime studies program. I know you're doing work on creating a Blue Heritage Trail. And I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this work and why it's so important, because, I mean, I feel it's important, but I, I, I'd i like it in your own words, if you could tell me about some of the work that you're doing for that. 
Sure. You know, I've been working with other faculty in the Maritime Studies program here at University of Connecticut on this, and we've been lucky enough to get a, a Maritime Heritage Grant from the National Park Service to, to fund our efforts. So what this is, is the, the desire to build a Maritime Heritage Trail that, you know, hopefully would eventually maybe uh, span the coast of Connecticut. Um, at this point, we're really focusing in on uh, southeastern Connecticut. There's an existing Thames River Heritage Park uh, that's, you know, a virtual park. It kind of contains the waters of the Thames River as well as, you know, the, the municipalities that bound it. And we've been working with them. And as part of our effort, we're developing, you know, we actually have this grant to develop signage, you know, hard signs, <laughs> actual signs that will go in the ground at like 12 different places around to highlight you know, uh, the, the stories that are embedded in these environments that I think people don't necessarily know. A lot of times our maritime heritage tends to be invisible. It's like a marginal experience. So we're trying to bring to life this relationship, this really long-term relationship that Connecticut, that folks who've lived here have had with the sea, you know, even um, obviously including, you know, the indigenous people who lived and still live here. And uh, we're also developing trails, walking trails, driving trails, boating trails, using an app called Izzy, I-Z-I. -I. It's a travel app. And so we have a few trails in that already, and uh, we're developing more. Uh, and uh, hopefully, at some point, we'll have a really robust website that will invite the public to share their stories as well, because I think there's no one story that captures, you know, this maritime heritage. And so... You know, I am hoping that at some point we can really make this into a collaborative experiment uh, to, to invite the public to, to share what they have, even archival photos or whatever. So on the flip side of that, I've, I personally, as a professor at UConn, I've been uh, incorporating this with other faculty into my classes as a form of service, service learning. And so I have my students uh, usually work on various kind of defined projects associated with this. Last semester, they researched the lighthouses of uh, each took a lighthouse and became an expert on it, on the history and all aspects of it. So, and this is a first step in developing an on the water kind of a boating trail so that folks could be on their boat. They could turn to this Izzy app and they would be able to, you know, learn about these lighthouses that they're seeing and, and the history and who haunts them and you know, say for Ledge Light, there's Ernie, <laughs> the, the ghost named Ernie who, who uh, inhabits it apparently. So, <laughs> um, you know, but there, there's just really wonderful stories about the, you know, kind of the engineering feats like Race Rock was, Race Rock Light was an incredible engineering feat to build. And, you know, I think it will just enrich people's experience, even those who live in Connecticut, uh, as well as folks who are visiting, you know, tourists. So, you know, it's really about enriching you know, people's experience and giving them a sense of, um, you know, we call it uh, informal education or K to gray. It's really free choice learning. So, you know, people are really learning much more uh, out of school than they do in. So, you know, kind of making that uh, free choice learning environment as, as full and, and um, full of content as can be as part of the experiment here. Yeah, well, I love the ways that you have you've been very creative in doing this Blue Heritage Trail, and it's important because, as you said, it does tie, you know, our human connections to the marine environments, to that maritime economy, 
which was very important to the building of the new, you know, New England area to the New England culture and heritage. And most importantly, uh, you know, to increase that ocean literacy, as you said, and that free choice type of learning. And this is the work I want our listeners to know about because I feel that it's so very important. And in some sense, I would say it's absolutely urgent. And that is ocean literacy. And for our listeners, ocean literacy is basically just an understanding of the ocean's influence on you and your influence on the ocean. So Sima, I believe that you're also working on a national program and mapping out the principles of ocean literacy. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, if you would. So I am involved, actually, not in the, the, the mapping out has occurred over about 20 years. It was a kind of an informal group of uh, NOAA, you know, kind of a federal educators and, you know, in, and educators who were not, you know, government uh, staff. So folks got together uh, starting about 20 or more years ago to cobble together these essential elements of what would be ocean literacy. And they have been codified into several, seven principles. I have not been involved in that process. One of my colleagues, Diana Payne at Sea Grant has. Um, and this is actually getting much more momentum now because the UN has just declared the decade of the ocean and we have these sustainable development goals. Number 14 is focused on the ocean. So, you know, there's getting a lot of traction now with focusing on, you know, things that are blue. Um, but briefly, I'll just say these essential principles. The first one is that Earth has one ocean and it has many basins, but there's just one ocean. So instead of thinking about the oceans I learned about when I was in fifth grade, uh, we think of this as one uh, landform that you know covers 70 plus percent of the Earth's surface. The second principle is the ocean and life um, in the ocean shape the features of Earth. Uh, the third is that the ocean is a major influence on weather and climate. The fourth is that the ocean makes the Earth inhabit inhabitable and uh, you know certainly for humans as well. And the fifth is that it supports a diversity of life and ecosystems. Certainly, you know, fish are the most abundant vertebrate, you know, group in the, in the world. Um, and, and uh, you know, certainly the greatest uh, phyletic um, genetic diversity exists in the ocean. So, um, and we, the, the sixth is that oceans and humans are inextricably linked. And the seventh is that the ocean is mostly unexplored at this point. And, and so, you know, I try to convey these things to my students, but working with one of my colleagues, Professor Helen Roswodowski, who's also at UConn in History and Maritime Studies, we really kind of drill down. She has this idea that this, uh, these principles are really, uh, to some extent, need to be integrated better with the humanities, with this idea that you know, we can say that there's one ocean, but for hundreds and uh, maybe thousands of years, humans have really thought of the ocean as being, you know, different, you know, you know, that there are many oceans, there's an Atlantic and a Pacific. Uh, and so we need to really consider uh, these, these human elements. Uh, and so in, I think two years ago, we had a panel at the National Council on Public History, uh, which involves some of my colleagues at uh, Mystic Seaport, uh, and Helen and a student of a former student of mine, uh, Colleen, who spoke about the Blue Heritage Trail. And uh, we, we, we talked about, you know, how this could be improved by integrating the arts and humanities into this perspective. So, and, and I do believe that a lot of the efforts now, um, you know, this, this process is 
is actually encouraging, you know, other perspectives to come in and hopefully these perspectives will be elaborated upon. But as you can hear the, the principles I just said, you know, only the sixth really focuses on humans and the ocean being inextricably linked, right? And so, right. you know, that relationship is so important to humans. Um, I think that there are a lot of ways we can elaborate on that. And my work in that, just to kind of go on, has to do with um, an art grant. So I work, another hat I wear is at Connecticut Sea Grant. I'm the research coordinator. And about, uh, you know, over 10 years ago, I met an artist named Susan Schultz, who does these amazing porcelain sculptures, still lifes of, you know, the marine debris on the beach or within the marine environment. And I, she told me, I went to her studio and she was telling me her process for creating these still lifes sculptures. And um, I have to say, when I went to the beach the next time, I looked at the beach completely differently. I also learned from Susan that she had been funded by a Rhode Island Sea Grant Art Award. And so I took that back to Connecticut Sea Grant and was given the green light to start uh, the Connecticut Sea Grant Art Award. And so we've been going for you know over 10 years now. Uh, and one of your colleagues, in fact, Jeff Slamba, he was, I think, our second uh, artist to receive this. He's an amazing sculptor. Um, and uh, he, for his work, he had created this amazing channeled whelk that was composed entirely of found styrofoam from the beaches of East Haven, uh, or actually not East Haven, West Haven, I guess it is where he lives. Um, and uh, so, you know, we've had these really successful artists who have, uh, it's not a lot of money, I got to say, it's, it's a competitive award. It awards up to $1,000 a year. We've had multiple artists awarded in a year. So we've had, I think, about 16 artists so far who've received this. And then two years ago, um, we had this retrospective um, ex exhibition that I helped curate at the Alexi von Schlippi Gallery at Avery Point. So, you know, it was really successful. And, and with that, and since then, I've had these interdisciplinary panels with artists and scientists that I've organized at Avery Point. We had one last year as a coastal perspective lecture uh, with um, uh, focused on plastics. And uh, that was, you know, really successful. We had another uh, with Christian Brevik and uh, Andrea Ogomoli, who's a, a marine mammal uh, biologist in Cape Cod. Uh, and they were focusing on uh, Christian's work, which is, you know, these amazing uh, sculptures of, of whales, uh, these ethereal sculptures. He've, he has shown them at Alexi von Schlippi as well as the uh, New Bedford Whaling Museum. But my own work really was, how can I integrate this into my classes? So I teach policy, marine policy or fisheries policy or you know, marine science classes. How can I use this amazing gallery and the work in it to enhance the education of my students? And that got me thinking, you know, can incorporating art into my teaching, can that help, you know, advance the educational outcomes I'm seeking and also maybe move beyond understanding to get, you know, actual attitude or even behavioral change, you know. And so, you know, even beyond teaching, can art influence our, our stewardship values? Can it, can it uh, enhance um, our, you know, our behaviors so that we act and conserve and, and uh, you know, uh, 
protect the, the uh, ocean and, and the environment in ways we wouldn't have. And so, you know, there's not a huge amount of literature on this. Uh, I've, I've surveyed it and, and have a recent article out about it in uh, the Park Stewardship Forum. Um, but, uh, you know, basically I think what I've come to is that art can engage our emotions and by engaging our emotions, it can in fact uh, evoke more, you know, behavioral changes than merely, you know, having knowledge. Uh, and, you know, we, we have this, you know, pretty clear understanding that, you know, just filling knowledge deficits doesn't change behavior. You know, if you don't, cramming more information into someone doesn't make them change their behavior because our attitudes and our opinions, you know, our values are so structured uh, and embedded deeply. So we need to really get down to the base of that structure to change our values, you know, through emotional engagement. Um, and so that's a place I'm, I'm really interested in. Yeah, well, I thought it was interesting that you even said that once you had seen the art sculpture and that you went to the beach and looked at it an entirely new way, just goes to show why it's so important to incorporate the science and humanities together and how art can play a role in engaging that emotional behavior. Like you said, that it's not knowledge that changes people's behavior. It's that uh, innate sense that they get inside of them that emotion that ties, you know, to them where they get to see and feel the impact of something. And that's kind of what makes an ocean literate person, right? They understand the essential principles, the concepts, you know, about a functioning ocean. They can communicate about it in meaningful ways. And, you know, an ocean literate person can make those informed and responsible decisions regarding the ocean and its resources. And one of the ways to get that message out there as well is to work with teachers. And I know that you've done training for high school teachers through early college experience. You know, when you talk to these teachers, what are the main themes that you train them on as, as an introductory course? You know, what are you having these teachers highlight in their classrooms? So I've given a few of these early college uh, experience trainings, and each one has been completely different. I just did one uh, a week ago, actually, and that one was focused on um, climate change. So we have, uh, and, and let, I should just say that this was aimed at maritime studies, early college experience teachers, and American studies. So, uh, and in the past, I've also uh trained uh, the natural resource or environmental science as well as marine science uh, high school teachers who are teaching these courses. But this was done in conjunction with Yukon Reads, which uh, is promoting a book called The Great Derangement, which is about climate change and literature and how literature has not really incorporated climate change in its uncanny and kind of phenomenal ways, its catastrophic ways, uh, adequately into uh, modern literature. And so my course was in case any of those teachers wanted to you know, incorporate climate change in their teaching. And I think for me, I always do, um, just to give them a little summary of the science. And I focused on um, some of the impacts as well as the solution. So thinking you know, beyond the science, since these are uh, less science courses that I was, the teachers are, are not, science teachers, they're maritime studies teachers, so they are more embedded in history maybe, or um, social science, uh, and to give them a sense of uh, what are some of those impacts at the, from the human side, and what are some of the ways that we can seek to address it, and then maybe to engage their students um, in, in those conversations, and maybe in actions, so that you 
you know, once we get past this COVID where everyone is socially distanced and, you know, online learning, um, we may be able to get to the point where we can actually go outside as a class and, and engage in, in activities, whether it's putting in a rain garden or, you know, maybe lifting up some asphalt and putting in pervious pavers or, you know, whatever it is, a vegetative buffer along a creek. Um, you know, we can start thinking in terms of how we can, you know, kind of address some of the problems. Yeah. And it's funny that you had mentioned, you know, once we're past COVID and kind of getting out and working together. Now, I had Dr. Molly Jacobs on the show last month from Project Oceanology, and I know that you've worked with her. And I thought it was funny. I remember speaking with you and you were talking about middle middle school students and (laughs) how different they are than working with freshmen at the university level. So uh, what have you learned from working with the younger middle school children uh, that are just starting out and learning about the world? Well, um, you know, I guess I, I feel lucky to teach college students. <laughs> I'm not used to, you know, some of the behavioral issues. Uh, usually with my students, I can just tell them to be quiet. quiet. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, it's, it's uh, interesting. That, that project that we're doing, it's funded by uh, NOAA. It's a BWET grant, and it's focused on Thames River resilience and climate adaptation. So we've had two phases to that. One phase has been teaching the teachers and the other phase is actually going into the classes. And the way we engage those students is not terribly different. You know, we have games. And to tell you the truth, I like to use games in my teaching with college students. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like when folks, when students, whoever, when you're enjoying yourself, you're more open to learning. So um, I I think, uh, you know, those approaches, you know, kind of are, across the board. Uh, and you can kind of drill down maybe more with my students at the college level than you can at middle school. But I think, you know, um, getting those, you know, kind of scaffolding some of those uh, concepts early, middle school or even younger, is so important so that by the time you get to college, you have students who are, you know, knowledgeable about, you know, these environmental issues and maybe some of the solutions and also have a good scientific grounding. No, I, I- Totally agree. And you're right. It It's not that different between teaching the middle school students and like a freshman at university level. Uh, it's just the advanced concepts that you get into. And I also, like you, try to gamify some of it that I can because if they're engaged, uh, you know, that that's learning, right? If they're experience, experiencing it and having fun with it, then it almost doesn't feel like learning. It's just kind of happening and, you know, most people love that learn by doing uh, exchange. And that's the thing that I love to incorporate, just like you do as well. And you and I also have similar experiences teaching university students about climate change and others. I mean, I teach a first year research experience at Southern Connecticut uh, State University. So I always like to tap in, you know, to my fellow colleagues. Why do you think it's so important to get students involved in research? Well, I, you know, of, of multiple reasons. I, a lot of the courses I teach are considered gen ed science. And so uh, I think that students can never have enough collecting data, analyzing data, and, you know, you know, basically building on that to synthesize some kind of uh, conclusion, right? Synthesizing data. So, uh, you know, whenever I can do that, right now I'm teaching an environmental science class. Soon my students will be going out to a cemetery to collect data on human survival at different time periods, and they'll be able to calculate survival curves and then figure out why was survival so different 
you know, in the 1900s versus in the 2000s, right? Uh, and so, you know, much better than me just, you know, kind of telling them, and then they'll get to understand how to construct a survival curve, how to, you know, analyze this data. So whenever I can get students to collect data, I do. Another thing my students are doing this semester uh, is, uh, and I, again, I like to incorporate service projects. So we're going to be working with a professor at LSU, Mark Benfield, who's collecting data on um, personal protective equipment and the disposal of, you know, masks and gloves during COVID, and the increase in waste, plastic waste, and you know, basically debris that's occurring. So they're going to be doing surveys of PPE in their neighborhoods and collecting that data and sharing it. Uh, and they're going to be hopefully sharing that also with another effort I'm involved in, which is uh, developing a marine debris action plan for Long Island Sound. And that's part of some work that I'm doing with Connecticut Sea Grant and New York Sea Grant that's funded by uh, NOAA also. So, you know, I love to get my students to actually work on problems that are real, collect data and have that, that engagement with the scientific method. And so, uh, you know, I think this is also gonna build critical thinking skills. And, um, you know, I, I think we need to have a pipeline into, you know, STEM that's gonna be as diverse as the pipeline of students in middle school, right? And right now those, those two, the demographics look different. And so the, the, the more you can get these experiences kind of down the chain. And again, I work mostly with you know, undergraduates. I don't really spend much time with middle school kids, but um, one thing I did do, which I'm really proud of, and we're in our second year, is I developed an undergraduate fellowship um, at Sea Grant that is focused on you know, enhancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. So uh, we're in our second year now, and those those call that call for for submissions, I would say, is out until closing is in March. Um, if anyone's interested, look at our website. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully, we're going to engage a, a group of students and give them some funding so they can work in the summer. It's a summer internship to work with a with a mentor. So it's a it's a mentor led program where they have to have a a uh, research lab and a you know faculty member or some type of researcher who's willing to you know, mentor them for the summer in their research. And that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I just think, you know, you know, obviously there's a, more to life than science, but, you know, we need to have a diverse workforce. And so that's, you know, why it's so important. And we need to have people, whether they're scientists or not, who are critical thinkers and can figure out, you know, how to vet the truth, you know, and now we, it's more important than ever when we have so many alternative realities, if you will, floating around, how do we tell what is the truth? That That is exactly right. And that's what I also, when I have my students, I have them looking at the data. Where is that data coming from? You know, when you're gathering the information, uh, is it coming from a reliable source? Because as you said, there's, you know, so much that's out there. But uh, when the students get out there and they get to collect the data themselves and put it together, or even narrowing down a research topic I find is good because, as you said, it enhances their critical thinking because they may think something's easy and then they go out there and they try to research it and they see, oh, wow, this is way too broad. Like I have to narrow it down or, oh, it wasn't as easy to capture this information as I thought it was going to be. So they kind of have to rethink it. So I love, you know, that getting students involved in research from the beginning. I think it's so very important. And you know, it's true that this next generation will be taking um, the helm of the ship and will soon be in charge of the world. And 
I love that you do something in your class that I'd like our listeners to think about. You had mentioned that when you have your students in your class, you watch, uh, you know, cli-fi, as you refer to them, you know, cli- climate fiction movies like Waterworld or Day After Tomorrow. And then you have your students envision the different futures that we can have, so either a dystopian or a utopian. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was a great way to kind of like kick students off, you know, when they start looking at, you know, climate change and their perceptions of, you know, that world of tomorrow. Yeah. So, you know, there are just so many futures that we could have. So this is a real visioning exercise. And I like it because I feel like it integrates all the in ecology and all the science we've learned all semester. So I want them, I give them a bunch of, you know, movie trailers. You know, they always want to watch Snowpiercer. <laughs> and one of my least favorite Wi-Fi's, <laughs> but um, they, they like it. Um, I like Wally, and you know, certainly the day after tomorrow, Mad yeah. Max. You know, those. You know, so there are all these things. Is it going to be hot and dry? Is it going to be wet and you know inundated? Are we going to be freezing our butts off? Um, you know, what's going to happen? And then now we have some utopian fantasies with Black Panther, right? Where we have this you know other energy source that apparently solves all our problems. Um, So I like to show them the diversity of, you know, futures, but more than that, I want them to get to thinking about a future that they can see. And then if it's a negative future, how can we avoid that? And, you know, look back at all those, all that science we've learned and figure out what are the drivers and how do we, you know, change those drivers, right? If it's pollution, if it's, you know, you know, loss of biodiversity, if it's, you know, emissions of greenhouse gases, Whatever is driving that future, uh, you know, how do we change it if it's negative? And if it's a positive vision, like, say, Black Panther, which is one of the few, right? We don't have that many utopian movies these days. How, how can we then get to that? You know, how, how can we create these futures that are desirable? Uh, and I think that just, you know, is so important because I think so much of the time people are just kind of like plankton, writing in time, floating into the future. And that is just not the case. Uh, it, well, it can be the case, let me say, but it shouldn't be. And, it, and I think as we see these really existential problems that we're facing, if we want to survive into that future, we really need to think more proactively about what we want it to look like and how we can get there. Um, because otherwise we will be like plankton riding into the next, uh, you know, <laughs> into whatever is, is out there in the ocean. Uh, so... Um, you know, you have to kind of take the reins and, and drive it. And my students are the ones who are going to do it. They're in their 20s for the most part. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how old they are, but they're you know, younger than me. They're, they're going to be the ones who are voting at the very least. And also, you know, working in these positions that are contributing to whatever future we have. So um, I think, you know, to just to get them started thinking about that responsibility uh, that's going to be resting on their shoulders to think about it critically and engage with it um, as, as something that is, doesn't have to be, but can be a choice, I think is, is important. Yeah. And that kind of ties into how I like to end every session, um, Sima, which is with a message of hope as we create the stewards of tomorrow. So what do you see as that message of hope for those who are listening to the podcast? Well, it's of course easier to say this now. But I think with our new administration, they seem to be taking climate change seriously. You know, we have, um, you know, if personnel is policy, we have John Kerry and Gina McCarthy now in positions of oversight over this climate change. We've re-entered the Paris Accord. 
Um, you know, I just read in the paper today that GM has said it will discontinue the use of gas cars by 2035 and go over to electric. So I think that all of these things, they didn't just get invented today, but now I think we have political will, uh, hopefully, to, at least in the US, um, and I think the rest of the world actually is a little bit farther on board than we've been. We've just been waffling back and forth. Um, but hopefully we can move forward uh, with some policies, whether it's you know more stringent cafe standards for cars so we can get better gas mileage or actually different fuel sources, um, you know, maybe enhancing our wind and, and solar industries and other renewables um, to, to get into a future that, that isn't uh, as dire as, as some of the, those cli-fi movies that I show my students, you know. So that to me, that's positive. I'm, I'm, I'm more positive today than I was yesterday. I am right there with you. Thank you, Sima, for that message of hope and for being on our show. And remember, it is listeners like you, our ocean stewards and citizen scientists, that need to push our governments and industries to join forces for ocean solutions. Our oceans are important to our survival on this earth, and we need production and protection to operate together. If you would like to donate to our program, if there is a topic you would like us to touch upon, or a guest speaker you would like us to have on the show, please feel free to visit us at futurefrogmen.org. Thank you for joining us today, and please spread the word as we work to improve ocean health by deepening the connection between people and nature. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you like what we do, you can find us on our website at www.futurefrogmen.org, or you can find us on all social media at Future Frogmen. We post episodes every week, so feel free to tune in. And until then, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks.